This is Kai Stewart reading The Domestication of the Brain by Kenichi Sato. In humankind's long road to cultivate relationships and dependencies with various organs, two of the most difficult and important struggles were the domestication of the heart and of the brain. Both of these organs had developed social structures of their own and successfully occupied their own ecological niches. Both organs were cunning and strong, and withstood domestication for far longer than the more docile spleens, livers, and pancreas. If we are to understand our modern struggles, it benefits us to understand the origins of these crucial relationships. The domestication of the heart was a long, slow process. Hearts are solitary most of the time, with fiercely protected territories, and their meetings are rare and dramatic. Hearts are lonely, in the sense that they are driven by longing, though what they long for varies widely. They're willful and won't be led. Without regular exercise and occupation, they become restive, fitful, wayward, and tense. If they achieve the objects of their desire, they brood and cluck around them, building nests of infinite variety and complexity. Unlike the gallbladder, which thrives in close, humid places, wild hearts are wanderers. Some keep a territory their whole lives. Others have many territories over weeks or years. Additionally, cardiac territories show no consistency in size or position. Hearts settle on tundra or in grottoes, in desert burrows and in the tops of tall trees. To meet these disparate needs, ancient humans have devised many schemes, obstructions, and enticements to keep their hearts close. We all remember old stories where people routinely lost their hearts through theft or inattention. At first, there was no consensus on how hearts should be best maintained. Some people hid their hearts in jeweled chests, or ducks' eggs, or encased them in ice or diamond. While probably giving their owners great peace of mind, these methods were prone to discovery while their owners' attention was elsewhere. And since the loss of an external heart is complete, Many owners died from their misjudgment. The practice of keeping hearts internally grew in popularity, in part because internal hearts are so much harder to lose, and in part because while having a publicly known location for a heart makes an easier target for malfeasance, it also makes an easier court case against those malefactors. For this reason, some scholars connect the upsurge in popularity of internal hearts with the increase in the rule of law during the Renaissance and beyond. When humankind began to value the heart, we valued it for its beauty, for the comfort it brings in its quiet moods, as well as the entertainment it provides when more active. While the brain was a partner in the struggles of early humanity, the heart was coveted, a fragile luxury available only to a few. Early humans shared a small number of hearts among a large social group. In such cases, all members were responsible for care, and all were entitled to a share of the benefits. The fashion of having a personal heart was a product of the affluence that followed the Industrial Revolution. Improvements in quality of life allowed people more luxury. Innovation in mass production and farming made hearts cheaper and more readily available than ever before. Young people started to receive their own personal hearts at younger and younger ages and flocked to movie theaters and booksellers to learn how to use them. 
Wealthy people could afford thoroughbreds, which, though often larger and stronger than their off-brand relatives, required a varied habitat if they were not to succumb to laziness and distemper. The author of this report spent a summer studying a wild heart population in Borneo. In the wild hearts we see glimmers of the hearts of our ancestors, small, tough, scattering into the rocks at the first sign of danger, but beautiful in their movements, in their untamed grace, in their shy elegance and quick power, in their lonely cries and the rich hues of their pericardia. There were six individuals defending territory in close proximity. The author kept the same camp for four months, walking into one territory or another, observing those beautiful creatures in their lives and habitats. Within a week of the author's arrival, he made an exciting contact. While cleaning up after breakfast, the author was thrilled by a trilling, liquid series of notes that cycled, but never quite repeated. The author walked a little way from his camp, rounded the bowl of an ancient tree, and saw a small, drab heart perched on the crest of a boulder. Though physically unprepossessing, the creature displayed a greater diversity of calls than the author had heard or read about before. Additionally, the heart was unusually bold. After a few moments of wariness, it scuttled up to investigate the author, even going so far as to sniff his clothes and tug on his shoelaces. The author remained still, reluctant to compromise scientific objectivity by interacting with the creature. And after a few moments, the heart startled at a sound from deeper in the forest and rushed off. In the following weeks, several small items disappeared from the author's camp. The author was mystified until one day he noticed the smallest of the hearts, dragging a small first aid kit belonging to him through the underbrush away from the camp. The author followed the heart back to its den and found several other misplaced items holding structurally integral positions in the walls and ceilings of his den. Curious, the author started to leave small items in accessible places. Some vanished immediately, others were left nearly untouched, and then, one day, the small heart tore its den into its component pieces, dragged the pilfered items into a common pile, leapt upon them, tore at them, broke them into many small pieces, and vanished into the forest. The other hearts expanded their ranges to encompass the little heart's territory, and the author did not see the small heart again. We call our hearts domestic, but it's important to understand that they're not far extracted from that small heart in Borneo. Everyone has a story about a family heart accidentally shut outside for the night that was never seen again, or that came back subtly different. The familiar warmth curled up in our chest can suddenly become foreign, secret, strange to us. We think we know them until they leap at something we can't see, or shrink into a corner, shuddering at nothing, or wander through the halls with loud cries. What are they looking for? Do they see something we don't, or are they responding to some internal impulse? We live with them, but we cannot know them. The domestication of the brain was a very different process. Brains are social creatures. They used to roam the lowlands in tremendous herds, devouring everything in their path, 
leaving behind the unreliable fertilizer responsible for the island of Alameda, the dust bowl of America's south, the catalyst of Chernobyl, the drying of oases and grazing paths through Central Africa, the lush San Fernando Valley. Wild brains were so revolutionary to their environments and so directly in competition with humans that we had little choice. We must either learn to live with them or be supplanted by them. But how did early humans make the initial contact? Brains in the wild form tight-knit social groups, each specialized to their particular environment. It is not uncommon now to find five or six populations of brains living together, each filling a different role in the ecosystem, each strikingly different in size and behavior. Though modern DNA comparisons reveal that these apparently very different populations share a common lineage that may have diverged only a few generations previously. So how did early humans insinuate themselves into these efficient cerebral systems? One theory holds that humans were able to integrate themselves into the lives of brains by making it difficult for brain populations to carry out their daily tasks. Humans might have followed the brains around, stealing food, disrupting rest, and generally making a nuisance of themselves until it was easier for the brains to enter into a partnership with humans than to navigate around them. One imagines early humans blundering into the herds, knocking over board games, stumbling into traps intended for prey, standing behind the brains and asking dumb questions until the majestic animals got fed up and started including humans in their activities. Another theory points out that while the brains were capable of vast, nuanced theoretical culture, they did not possess a primate's clever hands. Anthropologist Ichiro Mizuki points to a correlation between the rise in the number and variety of human artifacts and a decrease in the size of wild brains as evidence for this theory but since brains leave so few fossilized remains, that correlation has yet to achieve wide acceptance. A third theory posits that the human domestication of the brain is a classic example of neoteny. Advocates of this theory point to the domestic brain's smaller size, soft, flexible meninges, and lack of dorsal spine ridge, all of which characterize juveniles of the wild population. This theory attributes the domestication of the brain less to a symbiotic or cooperative relationship between brain and human than to brute stubbornness on the part of the humans. They kept trying to use the brains, and the brains that accepted the partnership were those that retained youthful attributes. Proponents of this theory, like Cambridge's Nigel Singh, cite the young brain's greater adaptability, especially to languages and nuances of culture. Opponents, like Maeve Eastman, professor adjunct of sociology at Yale, criticize the theory as being a fancy way of saying that we chose brains that wouldn't know any better. <laughs>